Hi, thanks for joining us for the inaugural episode of Practicing Wellbeing. This is a fortnightly podcast that talks about how teachers and school staff can instill wellbeing in schools, the philosophy, the obligations, and our realities. You're listening to Pre, Laura, and I'm Erica. All of us are pre-service teachers looking to understand how we can best equip our students with life skills throughout their schooling and bring back a focus on their well-being. This week's episode begins with cultural understanding. What does it mean? How can we really understand it? And how can we embed this as a long-lasting impression of us on our students? We've created a PD for a specific school in Melbourne, outer suburb secondary school, which has a diverse population. 55% of our students speak a language other than English at home and 20% of our student population is Indigenous and some of whom are incorporated into that 55% low demographic. Ethical and intercultural understanding are embedded in nearly all of the curriculum links proposed by ACARA. Unfortunately, I think that they aren't always well executed nor are they well understood in the current teaching and learning environments. Perhaps we don't revisit these often enough, so how do we make this a priority? To understand ways in which we can best integrate cultural understanding, I think it's first most important to understand the intention behind the curriculum links and the reality that schools face in embedding these. Walton, Priest and Parodies discuss intercultural understanding as an ongoing and critically reflexive process that includes uh, knowledge, skills and attitudes necessary for interacting with people of diverse cultural backgrounds and challenging our current views. They spoke about the ability to acquire knowledge objectively and talk about this in conjunction with understanding one's own culture before really being able to understand what it means to be different in cultural background. The Australian curriculum, while addressing subject areas, also has general capabilities and cross-curriculum priorities that delve into what all schools are to provide. There are three cross-curriculum priorities and two of these focus on cultural understanding and appreciation. Not only this, but... The Melbourne Declaration and FISO standards also discuss the importance of belonging and creating of global citizens. Running a PD day as a team, I think we first have to think about what are our responsibilities to the school and the identities of the students within it. By exploring the Melbourne Declaration, the priorities set out that are most immediately relevant are active and informed citizens and improving educational outcomes for Indigenous youth and disadvantaged young Australians. Pfizer Sands also talk about uh, vision, values and culture in the professional leadership section of the Pfizer target. And I think that's an important allusion to the school culture, the culture within the leadership team and the vision that we're drawing on as teachers under our school direction. Community engagement in learning also alludes to building communities, which I think extends beyond just representing the communities in the school, but actually creating a school community where everyone's respected for their differences and similarities. In practice, this is more working with an individual parent or caregiver, but more like creating partnerships that are meaningful and can address issues of disadvantage or specific needs and transition those into successes. Walton Priest and Parodies talk about the effectiveness of approaches to intercultural understanding, and they're only really seen long-term when there's a focus on preconceived attitudes towards certain cultures. The breaking down of these attitudes and addressing them individually was found on several other studies within their literature review to actually increase the longevity of the intercultural understanding of the students. 17 studies that they reviewed also showed that personal connections to those with different cultural backgrounds and different cultural groups create meaning of these interactions in students' lives. Unsurprisingly, the review also alluded to the requirement of professional development that is able to support teachers' intercultural capabilities in order to meaningfully embed this. Therefore, our team will be introducing and looking through ways in which the curriculum priorities relate to our school and how we can embed these at all levels. 
I've been listening to another podcast on racial isolation in schools called Teaching While White, which is based in the States. The podcast talks about how the assumptions are that white people um, and how we seem to normalize the assumptions that we have and how we judge them and treat them as the norm. The particular interview with Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. spoke about how just adding culture and in his case, African-Americans was considered the definition of diversity. And that soon changed to mean that teachers actually also had to represent the diversity. But he had trouble integrating this in meaningful ways, which is when he turned to um, these types of literature on creating relations with the school. He spoke about how this learning and integration along the way was an important way to highlight not only uh, to the students, but to the family members and communities outside of the school that there was ongoing support. For me, this is pretty relevant in Australia, in particular relation to our Indigenous cultures. The tool that we relate this to for part of our PD is the Eight Ways of Learning poster that integrates Indigenous learning within the learning that we do in our classroom already at outer suburbs. This was developed for both students and teachers and while the other tool is developed for just teachers and is about understanding the strategies that Asian cultures use in their classrooms and homes. It's a good time now to address the question of ethics. You're listening to Laura. Why should we make interculturalism part of the way the school operates? Why should we strive towards well-being for students from diverse backgrounds? Ethics is about moral principles and the concepts of right and wrong. We might think morality is not our business, that public education is, as former Prime Minister John Howard said, values neutral. However, I would suggest that ethical concerns are embedded in everything school staff do. From administrative staff taking care over which students' photographs are published, to teachers differentiating tasks and moderating assessment, to education support staff helping a student interpret the teacher's instructions, to wellbeing staff dealing with welfare issues and navigating privacy concerns. Journalist Jane Caro writes that public education is the only system that accepts all children without judgment, which demonstrates the values of acceptance and inclusivity. As McGill writes, teaching is a values-laden profession. You cannot not teach your values. The ethics of public education comes back to the goals of public education. Professor Alan Reed wrote about three of the purposes of public education. To enable individuals to develop their abilities to the fullest, to prepare young people to be confident, competent contributors to the economy, and to prepare all young people to be active and competent citizens in democratic life. Another goal of public education is to help ensure the well-being of students. Wellbeing is addressed in the Melbourne Declaration under confident and creative individuals as a sense of self-worth, self-awareness and personal identity that enables them to manage their emotional, mental, spiritual and physical well-being. Wellbeing within schools can also address issues such as welfare needs, the mandatory reporting of abuse, the prevention of and response to bullying, social and community health and creating a culture of inclusion. However, the well-being of students from cultures other than Anglo-Australian is often affected negatively, either by the structures and conventions of our school system or by the content and the pedagogy in individual classes. For example, a teacher may try to boost a student's self-esteem by singling him out for praise. However, to students from some cultural backgrounds, this may violate the principle of working for the good of the group. 
As another example, a teacher may assume that an Aboriginal student who rarely makes eye contact has low self-esteem or is rude, when in fact this may be a cultural practice. Thus we cannot assume that systems built with Anglo-Australian students in mind will necessarily enhance the welfare of students from other cultural and linguistic backgrounds. As Chapman points out, we must also be mindful of the normative tendencies of the notion of well-being that can seek to prescribe in what ways people should be self-actualised or even happy. We need to find ways to make education fulfil its purposes for those who are currently at a disadvantage in its structures. As Erica has described, and as Pri will go on to describe, some of the people whose well-being is currently disadvantaged by the system are students from diverse cultural and linguistic backgrounds, and it is those students who are our focus today. In outer suburban secondary college specifically, we are talking about students who are new immigrants, international students, refugees and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Various ways forward have been suggested by scholars. Solomon et al. argue for critical discourses such as anti-racism, critical race pedagogy and forms of feminist interventions, or proposes culturally responsive education. After our professional development session, we plan to ask for volunteers for a working group to examine some of these ways forward for the well-being of our diverse student population in more detail. The group might consider options such as interculturalism, anti-racism, critical race pedagogy, forms of feminist intervention, the eight ways, and culturally responsive education. It will then choose one of these pathways or a combination of these and develop it as a resource for the school. Pri will now conclude our presentation as she discusses the personal challenges we may be facing. Given the culturally and linguistically diverse student population in our school, our decision to conduct a PD to better equip our teachers in dealing with students from diverse backgrounds is, as we see it, a need of the hour. During many of our staff meetings, we have discussed and debated at length about numerous approaches that we can adopt both at a whole school level as well as at a classroom level to engage with difference and diversity. It is clear that members of our staff are very keen to actively incorporate culturally sensitive teaching strategies and as such the toolkit we have developed, we hope, will be of immense value in dealing with migrant students, newly arrived international students and Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander students. However, we are aware that implementing the strategies proposed also entails a number of personal challenges to teachers and may not be as easy and clear-cut as they seem at surface level. The staff demographics of our school clearly show that nearly 90% of our staff are from white Anglo-Saxon backgrounds. Most of us have very little first-hand experience of issues pertaining to migration and thus at times feel quite challenged in embedding intercultural understanding in our lessons in a meaningful way. This at times leaves us frustrated as we really do have the best interests of our students at heart. However, we feel that our attempts are quite feeble and that we are at times insensitive to the issues that many of our culturally diverse students deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. One of the main personal challenges white teachers face is the issue of acknowledging white privilege. 
As Peggy McIntosh claims, whites are taught to think of their lives as morally neutral, normative and average, and also ideal. They are taught not to recognize white privilege. As McIntosh very aptly states, white privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions and unearned assets, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools and blank checks. You may wonder in an era of excessive focus on multiculturalism, how white privilege can continue to be taken for granted. As pointed out in the literature, multiculturalism does not always result in a critical interrogation of the implication of white privilege. Often, teachers tend to locate the problem of racism as rooted in ignorance and lack of knowledge about culture, thus effectively removing the need to interrogate issues of power, dominance, historical colonization and oppression, fostered primarily by whites against other groups. This unquestioned white privilege is then also what systematically works to over-empower certain groups while making other groups more unconfident, uncomfortable and alienated. As white teachers confronting this disparity, questioning our own privileges produces a certain amount of discomfort and we may not always be willing to go that extra mile. Secondly, when challenged, this new information that poses a challenge to the personal, cultural and ideological underpinnings of white teachers also forces them to grapple with what Solomon et al. term as seemingly incongruous positions. The difficulties associated with acknowledging the existence of these alternative ideologies can result in white teachers choosing to focus only on their own personal sense of suffering and oppression. As Solomana et al. Pesit, the maintenance of this focus on the self, on feelings of discomfort, guilt, anger, frustration, etc. that one feels, serves to ensure that there is no space to address the needs of other groups whose very existence is mired in oppression and inequity. Thus, as Matthias and Zembilas Pesit, Instead of asking how our racially privileged role might encourage representations of our whiteness and how that may impact ways in which we teach students of colour, we immediately tend to deflect and project our racial discomfort onto students of colour, often claiming that we will not be able to reach our students because they will always assume that we are racist because we are white. Another common challenge is that at times we can make excessive use of declarations of caring and empathy, which can often be empty and inauthentic because they fail to be accompanied by any real action. In doing so, as Matthias and Zembelas claim, such benign feelings often disguise other feelings that are deeply rooted in one's subjectivity but must be soothed politically. Acknowledging these myriad challenges is the first step in what we see as a long journey. We hope that this PD and teacher toolkit that has been provided to our staff will encourage them to engage actively with issues of cultural differences, diversity and racism, and will assist them in taking a step back and critically interrogating their own individual positions so as to, so as to actively pursue issues of social justice and equity 
pertaining to those who fall outside the hegemonic boundaries of white privilege. Well, hopefully that's given you a bit of food for thought. Thanks so much for listening to our first episode of Practicing Wellbeing. Remember, you can always tweet at us or um, get into our comments and let us know what you would like to uh, discuss or if you would like to have discussions about our wellbeing in your schools. Um, You can rate, review and subscribe to our podcast channel here. Um, And we hope to see you next fortnight for our next episode.